Hey, this week as we get ready for Ruth chapter 2, I want to start by bringing out the point that women have a key role to play in God's plan. And they always have. It's not just the New Testament when you think about Mary or the women who followed and supported Jesus' ministry. Even in the Old Testament, Ruth is one of two books in our Bible named after women. Do you know what the other one is? Esther, absolutely. And one man pointed out, it's interesting when you look at the similarities and contrast between those two books. Ruth was a foreigner that God used in Israel. Esther was an Israelite that that God used in a a foreign land. So that's kind of cool. I even think about the way this book was written. Many throughout history have appreciated just the, the sheer narrative of this book. If you like to read Ruth is a book you want to read. Have you heard of Goethe? Goethe was a great German poet. He read this book and he called it the most beautiful short story. That's how it struck him, just just reading through it. And if you've read it, you you probably know what, what he's getting at. As I've read it, I've seen that it is as romantic a story As anything you'll find on Hallmark, admittedly, I usually fall asleep within 10 minutes, and this is probably not as sappy as many of those, but does have some romance. But it also also takes us into some some spiritual depths of meaning that, that are far deeper. If we will listen with ears of faith and and read with with eyes of faith. I have two main ideas this morning that I want to get across. One is that God is at work in the lives of Ruth and Naomi. You remember last week in chapter one, we talked about the pain as widows that they were experiencing. We talked about the great cost for Ruth to, to follow Naomi. We talked about the puzzle piece, how at that point in the story, it must have seemed like this puzzle piece, and they must have been wondering, how is this all going to work out? Just like we do when we live moment by moment through our lives. But God is at work in their lives. The second point this morning is this, that the character and actions of Boaz, who we meet in this chapter, point us to a future Redeemer. I'm showing you my cards up front. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? Because I believe all of God's word points to Jesus Christ. He is the living word. And he said that to the Pharisees in his own time. You remember in John 5, 39, he looked at those religious leaders and he said, you search the scriptures at that time, the Old Testament, right? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, those scriptures, that bear witness about me. That's what Jesus said. He went on, he said, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So I want to warn you, if you ever come across anybody, whether it's in a podcast or in person, that tells you to detach from the Old Testament, take them to the words of Jesus here and say, no, no. The Old Testament is just as important in the life of the believer as the New Testament because it is God's inspired word and it all points to Jesus. 
And as we talk about God at work in the lives of Naomi and Ruth, I want to walk you through six I-N statements to kind of keep it organized. The first one is the introduction of Boaz. The introduction of Boaz. Now, I have an important question here. Do you know what kind of man Boaz was before he met these ladies? He, he was ruthless. Now, I confess that's not original, but, <laughs> okay, now we're, we're going to look at, okay, what is God's word, how does God's word describe Boaz? Let, let's, get, let's get real here for a minute. Chapter 2, verse 1, says, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man. Okay, so he was a worthy man, all right? He's a relative of her husband's. Then it says, of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So we see a couple things here. Twice in one verse, we realize that he's a, a close relative of Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech. Okay? Why does that come up twice in one verse and more later? We'll get there. But just know for now that's important. We know that he's a worthy man. What does that word mean? Well, it's a loaded word. It was the same word used when you read the book of Joge, uh, Joges, Judges. It was Gideon, you remember? that God's messenger came and said, Hey, mighty man of valor. That was the word worthy there. It could mean a courageous kind of man. Boaz was courageous. It could mean wealthy, which is important in the context of this story for what's going to happen. It could mean man of integrity as we think when we hear worthy. It could be all of those things. Whatever the case, he's a worthy man. Verse 2, as Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Some may be saying, what's that mean to go and glean in a field? Well, to understand that, you have to go back to the law. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 9 explains what gleaning is all about. God said, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. Don't gather up the leftovers. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. There's a very important biblical principle here that, that God's people should always have margin in their lives to be ready to help those in need who we encounter. Okay? We're going to see it goes even deeper. But that's what gleaning is. Go on with me. Verse 2. Naomi said to her, Go, my daughter. Now, we remember from chapter 1, this is actually her daughter-in-law, but you see how close they are after all they've been through? She calls her daughter. Verse 3, so she set out, went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. There we go again. He's a close relative. Now, that happened here. <laughs> how many of you think it was just a coincidence or if the author is being kind of tongue-in-cheek here to point out something that what happens in our minds is actually under 
that providential control of God, just like we heard last year, last week. It wasn't that long ago. <laughs> yeah. In their perspective, it just happened. But in God's perspective, this was all part of the plan. Verse 4, it says, Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. You remember, that's the city where all this is, is taking place. And Boaz said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The, the Lord bless you. And I read that and I thought, Boy, I, I'm sure that's what all of your workplaces are like on Monday morning, right? You, you show up on Monday morning and the boss says, The Lord be with you. Right? Is that your Monday morning? Likely not, right? But how cool is that? How cool is that? This is a day in a field of a farmer. And God is front and center in this man's life. And I think about that. Boaz, is, he's not a priest. He's not a prophet. He's a farmer. And yet here's God on display from the beginning and all through this story. And that reminds me that God does much of his best work outside of these walls. You know, I think about Boaz the farmer, and I think about the fact that whether you're a salesman, a teacher, a nurse, a stay-at-home mom, or a UPS driver, God does some of his best work out there in your lives. I mentioned UPS driver on purpose because Jason, who comes to our 830 service, he does our UPS route, and he shines Jesus all along that route. He prays with people, and he had an idea for the UPS headquarters in Prescott Valley. He called me and one of my other pastor buddies and said, hey, would you guys be willing to come in some Friday mornings and be available for the UPS drivers to, to pray if they have a prayer request just before they head out on their routes? And we said, absolutely. Well, he went, and he checked with his supervisor, and after thinking about it, they, they told him, you know, we probably shouldn't because if we say yes to you, then we're going to have to say yes to every request. And Jason was kind of bummed until we reminded him of something. We said, Jason, you're already doing this, but I want to remind you of something. You are the UPS minister. <laughs> you know, God is going to use you to reach men and women in places where pastors cannot go. And that's true for every one of us as we step outside these doors. God, God does some of his best work in the day-to-day, -day, just like he did in the field of a farmer named Boaz. So that's the introduction of Boaz. Second point, I want to show you his inquiry about Ruth and intervention on her behalf. He's going to ask a question. And I see a couple things about Boaz in this little section here. Number one, Boaz is proactive. He's proactive, okay? Verse 5, as Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And I don't doubt that there may have been some attraction involved here. God uses such things as he weaves together his story. But we're going to see there was a whole lot more as well. Whatever the case, he was proactive. He, he went out and said, Who, whose young woman is this? And I think about that. I want to ask you, do we have a, a proactive redeeming God? Absolutely we do. Think about what we 
what we read in the New Testament. Ephesians 1.4 says of, of God's children, says he chose us in him, in Jesus. When did he choose us? Before the foundation of the world. Before the world was ever created, he chose us. That's proactive. What about Jesus himself? First Peter 1.19, Peter calls Jesus a lamb without blemish or spot. He says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Think about what that means. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world as a sacrificial lamb who would die for your sins and my sins. That's proactive. What, what does that mean? It means the cross was not some last-minute scramble on God's part after Adam and Eve chose to sin in the garden. God wasn't saying, oops, what do I do now? It was already planned because we have a proactive, redeeming God. So Boaz was proactive. Let's go on to verse 6 and see what happens. As the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered his question. She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Over and over in this book, the author goes out of his way to remind us this is not an Israelite woman. This is a foreigner. She's from Moab. She's from Moab. He says, she, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. She's been out there working hard. Boaz is not only proactive, Boaz is a provider. He's a provider. Look at verse 8. It says, Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Why does he call her daughter? Many believe there is a significant age difference. Perhaps Boaz was quite a bit older. Listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Typically, the gleaners show up after the work crew's done. Okay? Everybody's gone and then the gleaners show up. Boaz says, no, you stay here with my servant girls and you pick up what you want right as they go. That, that's provision on Boaz's part. Now skip to the end of verse 9. You'll see more. He tells her, when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. This is not required by the law. All that was required by the law is that she pick up leftovers. He's providing water to her as well. You go get whatever water you need to drink, okay? Is our God, our Redeemer, a provider? Yes. You remember going through the book of Philippians? You remember that verse in chapter 4, verse 19? My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I was talking with Dave about that verse a couple weeks ago, and he was reminding me it doesn't say from his riches and glory. It says according to his riches. If I give you from a million dollars, I might give you a buck. But if I give you according to my riches, I'm going to give to you generously. That, that's our God. He is a, a providing redeemer. So he's proactive, he's a provider. The third one, Boaz is protective. He's protective of Ruth. Verse 9, he says, Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? 
I don't know how it went down, but I can imagine Boaz going around, you boys better not lay a hand on this girl. If you do, you're going to answer to me. I don't know how it went down. Whatever the case, he's protecting this young woman. Do we have a protective God as his children? You bet we do. Remember what Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? You know, if you're God's child through faith in Jesus, God is for you. When you think about this proactive providing protector, you know where my mind goes? It goes to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Obviously, Jesus is the pinnacle example, right? But I think there's a word here for our husbands, too, as we look at both Boaz and Jesus. I know our roles are under assault in today's world, the kinds of ways God calls us to care for our wives. But when we think about being a proactive, providing protector, I want to tell us husbands, regardless of whether this world thinks it's archaic or chauvinistic, I want to tell you it is biblical, it is Christ-like, and I want to encourage all of us in the power of the Spirit to pick up that baton from Jesus and from Boaz and run with it on behalf of the wives God has put in our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's go on. I want to talk about an insightful interaction between Boaz and Ruth. And first I want to bring out Ruth's reserve, okay? Think of all she left. She left her homeland. She left her gods back there. She left the likelihood of getting married. All of that, she traveled 50 miles. Now think about how she could have come into Israel helping Naomi. Like, and I, I gave up so much to be here. I'm here doing all this for Naomi. This, this Israelite God, he owes me. He, he better get the job done. And then she could have transferred that same kind of attitude to Boaz, right? You owe me. Look, look at all I did for Naomi, your, your Israelite relative here. Is that how she came in? No, the exact opposite. Verse 10 says she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? When she says, why have I found favor in your eyes? What's she talking about? She's talking about undeserved kindness from a superior, right? And I think about that, and I think about the fact that it's healthy for us as God's children to maintain some of that as we think about our relationship with God. You remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 8:4? What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You ever look at the vastness of the universe and wonder, why does God care about me? But he does. Or what about Luke 18, 13? Jesus told, told a story about two people that went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and he's bragging about all the stuff he did and all the stuff he didn't do. And this other guy, a despised tax collector, Luke 18, 13, says the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You remember Jesus' point. He said, which one of those two men went home justified before God? 
It wasn't the Pharisee. It was the tax collector. He was real. He was humble about his sin. We are to be real with God. We are to be humble. I, I think about something Philip Yancey said in a video I saw this week. He's talking about how sometimes we try to hide our, our sinfulness from God. And when we do that, we're like, we're like two-year-olds. You ever, you ever have a two-year-old, they're playing peekaboo like this, and they really think you can't see them? But you can see them, right? It's obvious to everyone but them. He said, that's what it's like when we try to put masks on, when we talk to God. He says, be real. He knows who you are. He knows your sin. Come humbly, come honestly, and talk to him on a real level. Stop playing games. Okay, but here you see her humility, her reserve. Now I want to look at Boaz's recognition of Ruth. Verse 11 says, But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and, and came to a people that you did not know before. He had heard. And you think about her coming to a people that she did not know before, leaving her native land. She sounds a lot like Abraham, right? The founder of Israel had to, had to leave Ur, a woman of faith from a foreign land. God loves faith. And it's ironic because he gives it to us as a gift. First, Ephesians 2 said faith is the gift of God. But he loves faith. Think about Abraham. What does James 2.23 say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Was Abraham called a friend of God because he was perfect? <laughs> if you think so, you haven't read Abraham's story. <laughs> he was a friend of God because of faith. Hebrews 11:6 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. And God loves faith not just in Israel, not just inside the church. He loves faith in Him wherever He finds it. This is a Moabite woman. That's why we talk about overflow, taking the good news of Jesus outside these walls where people need to hear it. And that overflow, it doesn't just start in the New Testament. You see it here with this Moabite woman, but go, go further into the, the Old Testament. Think about Elisha and Elijah. Some of the widows they did some of their coolest miracles for weren't even in Israel. Think about Jonah going to the hated Assyrians, Nineveh, with a message of God's mercy that those people needed to repent. God loves faith wherever he finds it. So he recognized what she had given up, recognized her faith. Now I want to talk about her reward and refuge from God. He says in verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done. And we're about to see that her ultimate reward among many would be God himself. Watch the rest of the verse. He says, a full reward will be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What a beautiful picture of God's love for his children. If you've ever seen a mama bird take her babies under her wings, 
It comes up over and over in the Old Testament. Go, go through a, an online search Bible and type in wings and, and trace this thread through the Bible. What, what's the picture, though? It, it's warmth, it's, it's closeness, it's safety, it's protection from a God who loves us. Psalm 36, 7 says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. I think about this, and I also think about another psalm I read this week. I think we need to think about this. Psalm 35, 27 says, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Do you believe in a God who delights in the welfare of his servants? I ask that because that's the God of the Bible. Now, granted, that welfare may look different than how I define it or how I want it to be. But when it comes to our ultimate welfare, we have a God who delights in that. Do you trust his heart for you if you're his child? Do you rest in that, that he delights in the welfare of his servants wherever you find yourself today? I want to come back to Ruth's reserve one more time in this little section. She comes back to it. She, verse 13, she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. When she talks about him comforting her and speaking kindly to her, the Hebrew paints a really cool picture. It, she's saying, you have spoken to my heart. And not just you've spoken to my heart, but you've spoken words of, of reassurance. Can you imagine how good that felt after the years she had just lived through? Have you ever been there? You've gone through a long stretch of dark trials and then, then either through God's word where he speaks to you himself or another believer comes along with a word of encouragement and it just fills your sails again. I think that's what She's feeling right here. Let me ask you, does, does God speak words of comfort to the hearts of his children? Oh, yeah. Think about Romans 8.15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit tells us. God is your daddy, your papa, as my friend Sam called him. But you see her humility and her reserve on display here, too. She says, you've spoken kindly to me, though I'm not one of your servants. That reminds me of what Jesus said to his disciples. You remember Luke 17, 10? He said, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, Say this, just say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Did you know Jesus said that? I think about that. There's a balance here. On the one hand, God does not want his children to grovel in self-focused pity because if you come to Jesus, you're a son or daughter of the king, right? But on the other hand, never forget to be grateful for the wonder of his grace. 
Never forget that we don't deserve it. Stay humble. Let's go on. I want to show you the increased level of his care for her. Because Boaz went far and above anything the law required of him. All he had to do was leave some leftovers. But watch this. And it, and it plays out primarily in two ways. Number one, relationship. And number two, rich provision. Okay? Let me talk about the relationship. Just beginning. Verse 14 says, At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. Now, was Boaz under any requirement to invite this foreign gleaner to lunch? Absolutely not. And I want to ask you a question. You think about the threads in the Bible. As you think about Ruth sitting at a table with a generous superior, enjoying fellowship, and bread and wine. Does it remind you of anything? It does me. Does that ring a bell? The relationship is beginning far and above anything he was required to offer. Now I want to talk about the rich provision. Let's go on. Verse 14. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. There were leftovers. It reminds me of Jesus when he talks about being the bread of life that satisfies and he played it out in front of the people by multiplying bread and loaves so much that there were baskets left over. Jesus doesn't give us just enough. He gives us more than enough. He satisfies. Let's go on. Verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. What's that mean? Sheaves are bundles, right? Let her take some out of those bundles. Don't just make her get leftovers off the ground. Let her pull some out. And then he goes one step further. He, he tells his people, verse 16, and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and and do not rebuke her. You see what he's doing? He's like, just leave her a trail, guys. Load her up, man. He's being so generous, far and above what the law required. He says, don't rebuke her. Verse 17 says, she gleaned in the field until evening. Yeah, no wonder she found a jackpot, right? <laughs> it says, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Now, I confess that meant nothing to me when I read it this week. Any of you go to the store looking for an ephah of anything? Not me. So I looked it up. The scholars range from 25 to 50 pounds that, that she had at the end of that day uh, of grain. And when you factor in that one to two pounds was like your daily provision, she, she's going home, and I don't know how she got there. <laughs> But she's going home with weeks of provision for herself and Naomi. More than enough. Do we have a God who goes above and beyond in his care? Think about Romans 8.32. What's it say? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. You just stop there and say, that is more than enough right there. But he doesn't. 
says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You understand the logic here? If God cares about your eternal destiny enough to give his son, of course he cares about that daily trial you're facing in your life right now. We saw this in our own family through Brother John, who we talked about, who's with the Lord now. We were car shopping uh, several months ago because of our 15-year-old in the house, and, and we were looking for a good deal. My mind raced back to uh, one we had got as a young married couple one time where it was an old car but well-maintained and a very low price, and I, I didn't even pray it formally. I just thought, Lord, it would be very cool if we found something like that again. Fast forward just a week or two, this, this is probably a couple months ago, John comes to church on a Sunday and he says, I've been praying and I've decided I'm not going to drive anymore and I'm going to sell my Pontiac Vibe and here's the price. And when he said the price, it was almost exactly the, the price of the one I was thinking about from back in the day. I was like, John, you do not know what an answer to prayer you are right now. Thank you. And then to see God's heart in John even more, after it happened, I, I talked with Will, and Will told me John had talked to him. And I saw God's heart in John. John had told Will, I wanted to give that car to them at that price because I wanted Jaden to, to have a, a safe car that he could be proud to drive to his school. It's like, man... I saw God's loving heart for us, but I saw it through John. That's the kind of heart God has for us. It may not always be exactly what we want, when we want it, etc., but he's, he takes care of his children, okay? But beyond those physical possessions, I want to go bigger picture here. I want to talk about law and grace. Because when I think about law, you know what the question is? What do we deserve according to God's law? <laughs> Yeah, zero. And even worse, we deserve eternal punishment in hell apart from Christ. Let me talk to you about grace, what God provided above and beyond at the cross. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean up because he knew we couldn't. He knew we needed a Savior. That's grace. That's going above and beyond. Next one. I want to talk about the deeper importance of who Boaz is. He is a redeemer. What's that mean? That's one of those words we throw around, right? Redeem, redemption. What's it mean? We'll, we'll come around. But for now, look at verse 18. She took it up and went into the city, her 25 to 50 pounds, she must have had help. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, well, where did you glean today? And I, I can imagine Naomi's eyes being like this when she saw that load. Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord 
whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And I believe when she's talking about whose kindness, she's talking about the kindness of God shown through Boaz. But why does she say whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead? Why does she include the dead in there? That's kind of a weird thing at first. Listen, right? Well, that's where we get into the understanding of what a redeemer is. A redeemer in these times had to be a close relative. That's why you've probably heard it called a, a kinsman redeemer. The redeemer had multiple responsibilities in the clan. He would care for the destitute in the family, in the clan. And one specific way is that if a man died and didn't have a male son to keep the, the land in their name, the Redeemer would buy that land to keep that land in the name of the dead man. Now, that's also closely related to something you may have heard of called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage comes from the Latin word lever, which means brother-in-law. If a wife is left without her husband, the brother-in-law or another close relative would marry her in order to have male children so that not only the land, but also the name and the inheritance could stay in the family of the dead man. You get that? So there, there's the idea of Redeemer in a nutshell. Now, let me ask you a question. In this account, who died? Whose land, whose name, whose inheritance needed protected? Elimelech and Malon, Ruth's husband who passed away, right? That's why it's repeatedly mentioned throughout this story that Boaz was a close relative of Elimelech. And that's where the kindness to the dead comes in. Does that make sense? And those are some deep waters. Verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, just like we read, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. That kindness there, we, re, we just read kindness, but it's a special word. This is talking about the hesed of God towards his covenant children. Do you know what hesed is in Hebrew? It is the loyal love that God has towards his children. And it, you can trace that thread all through the scriptures. What is this has said? Listen to this definition that J.A. Motyer gives us. He says, has said combines the warmth of God's fellowship with the security of God's faithfulness. We need to know about the has said of God as his children. But stepping back big picture to this idea of redemption. In the Bible, it always looks two ways. One, it looks back to the, the Exodus. Every time the Israelites heard about redemption, they thought about God setting them free from Egypt. How do we know this? Verses like Deuteronomy 7, verse 8. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. But it also looks ahead to Jesus. It also looks ahead to Jesus. Remember we said the Redeemer had to be a close relative in order to fulfill that function? Let's look at Jesus, Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children, you and I, share in flesh and blood, 
Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. One of the key reasons Jesus took on flesh was we needed a close relative to be our redeemer. Okay, number two, what do we need redeemed from? The curse of sin. The curse of sin. Listen, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What about our inheritance? Ephesians 1.11, short and sweet, in him we have obtained an inheritance. That's what redemption is all about. Now, as we close, I, I want to say that Ruth has already been greatly blessed, right? <laughs> right? But we're going to close with looking at the fact that Naomi is interested in more. She's interested in more. We're going to see the beginnings of a little holy matchmaking. For those of you who enjoy that sort of thing, here we go. Verse 22. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. And that's true. This was the days of the judges. A lot of danger out there. She had found a safe place in Boaz Field. And Naomi wasn't lying there. Verse 23 says, So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. Look that up. That's five to seven weeks, April to June, that she stayed there, there gleaning. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Now I look at Naomi here, and I think Naomi's thankful, very thankful for what Boaz has already done. But she wants Ruth to take full advantage of his potential as a redeemer. How do I know that? Just a quick peek. In the 3-1, it says, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? Now, let me ask you a question. When Naomi's talking about seeking rest for Ruth, is she saying Ruth needs a nap? No. She's saying she needs a husband. She needs children. She needs a home. Will it come to pass? That has to wait for the weeks to come, unless you go home and read Ruth chapter 3 and 4 today. Cliffhanger. All right. Where'd we start, though? God was at work in the lives of Naomi and Ruth through a redeemer named Boaz. God is at work in our lives through a redeemer named Jesus Christ. Have you met him? Have you trusted him? Have you experienced his said, his loyal love? Have you taken shelter under the refuge of his wings? Father, thank you for this beautiful book of Ruth. I thank you so much for the Old Testament. I think of how much we would miss about redemption without just this, these little four <laughs> chapters. You were so intricate in how you gave us your word, and we're so blessed. 
God, forgive us if we ever take it for granted. Thank you for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for your proactive plan before the world was even formed. Lord, I thank you for your provision. And Lord, I, I thank you for your loyal love, your said, your faithfulness to your children. May we rest in that today. And may you draw anyone who needs you as a redeemer for the first time to the foot of the cross. May you let them know that Jesus died for them. He rose for them. If they will turn from their sin and turn to him in faith, embrace him as their savior, they will find him as their redeemer as well. In Jesus' name, amen.